Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And granted, it was just a few short weeks ago that we leapt forward into a brand new year. But for the next hour, we're going to do something completely different and leap back. Yes, we're going to press the rewind button and whiz back to the Washington region of yore with a show we're calling Throwbacks. Pedal produce with vendors on horse-drawn carriages. We knock on their door. We bring them to the door. We bring the grocery to you. And we'll visit some old furry friends tucked away in a Smithsonian basement. These were rather hastily made for this television show in the 50s, and they obviously were creating them for the moment. That they have lived beyond the moment is rather remarkable. Plus, we'll take one last spin around the dance floor of an old-time polka hall. And we'll dig into the history of one of D.C.'s more contentious landmarks. For many years, nothing was happening here. Nobody was walking on here unless people were trespassing. And it seemed very mysterious. But our first story today is about some men and a smattering of women after our own hearts. It probably goes without saying that we here at Metro Connection tend to majorly geek out when it comes to... I've got crystal radios. I've got Atwater Kent breadboards from the 20s. Radio. You've got the whole gamut all the way up through uh, the Zenith Transoceanic radios. And for us, it's all about making radio and listening to radio. But for the 800 or so members of the Mid-Atlantic Antique Radio Club, or MARC, including Virginia resident Jeff Shearer here... It's all about fixing, cleaning, restoring, and collecting. You're a bit of a collector. Oh, yes. My collection, I think, is is small. By comparison, I've got about 200. You hear that? For these folks, a collection of 200 radios, and in Jeff's case, we're talking pristine, high-end vintage radios, is considered small. Well, there are people who have huge numbers of radios. In fact, one of our members who died a few years ago his house was filled with radios, and I mean filled. Maryland resident Brian Belanger has been with the club since its founding in 1984. In fact, he had one bedroom where the radios were stacked floor to ceiling, completely filling the room. In many parts of the home, the radios were stacked up so high you had a little narrow corridor to walk from one room to the next. It was really a, a serious, uh, I, I serious think problem. I we had to say he had a little bit of a hoarding problem. <laughs> a little bit of a hoarding problem. It was a, a huge hoarding problem. That other fellow is former Mark Vice President Steve Hansman. We're in Centerville, Virginia, in the parking lot of the Sully Station Community Center, where the club is about to hold its monthly meeting. But before we move on, just to be clear, that kind of hoarding Steve and Brian mentioned, it isn't exactly common among club members. What is common, says Steve, is a shared appreciation for what he calls the old things. We like to tinker with the old things where you can see the different components and see where the wires hook up. And, you know, they're much easier to work on than modern sets and more satisfying. Not only that, says Jeff Shearer, but they're often more or less works of art. Like the stately old cathedral radios introduced in 1932. Or the gleaming mirrored radios built between 1935 and 1937. Uh, Jeff, by the way, has about 15. I have radios in green, have them in blue, uh, have them in like a silver color, and also in the peach color. But not only do these things look good, they sound good too. Especially the old analogs. I mean, the little Bose speakers, they're good. You know, but when it comes down to it, if, if you know, I you know, talked to the Bose people and I said, Oh, how do you adjust the tone? you know, if you want a little more bass. And they're like, you don't. One of the things that's so amazing about the guys in the club is they'll collect these vintage radios, many of which don't even work, but after some tinkering, they'll get them to sound like new again. And uh, when I say guys, I do mean guys. 
Here's Brian Belanger again. You'll notice this tends to be a male-dominated hobby. We have about 800 members in our club, and I think we only have two females, as I recall. So if you'd like to join, why, you can help our percentage here, give us some diversity. It also tends to be uh, dominated by senior citizens. Uh, You'll notice a lot of gray hair here today. I think a lot of the people were in the industry back in their day when they were working. They were working in electronics, and a lot of the interest comes out of that. And the industry tends to be kind of male-dominated. Not that there aren't women doing it, but I think that kind of follows. Current Mark President Eric Stenberg does have a point. Jeff Shearer, for instance, fell in love with broadcast electronics while working at the Federal Aviation Administration. Steve Hansman got hooked because his dad worked with electronics. But Eric says his reason for joining Mark was different. I kind of found it. It looked like it was a fun thing to fix these things up. And once he fixes them up, he'll often sell them, as he is today. Before each meeting, Mark holds an outdoor flea market, and Eric's table is covered with wooden radios. That's kind of my niche. You'll find most of these collectors have a niche, you know, either a particular era or a particular type of radio. Could be, you know, plastic radios or transistor radios, a small transistor radio from the 60s. That's a a popular uh, type of thing. Price-wise, the items at the flea market pretty much run the gamut. Today, outside the Sully Station Community Center, Jeff Shearer is asking $500 for a pumpkin-colored pre-World War II Fada Catalan radio and $2,000 for a hand-painted 1933 Mickey Mouse radio. But inside the community center... Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to start the auction. A few more bargains are to be had at Mark's monthly auction. Okay, let's get this auction underway, folks. The first item here is number 14-4, a box lot of four uh, ivory-colored radios, a couple of which are not bad. Let's start that at $10 for the box. Do I hear a $10 bid somewhere? $10. Bucks. Who wants it for $10? Bucks? Start at In addition five. to being a founding member of the club, Brian Belanger is also one heck of an auctioneer. All right, here's another box lot. This is item 14-3. Look at you're getting a nice Bendix. I think that's a model, what is it, 626 or something like that? And let's start this at 5 bucks for the whole box. Got five. Do I hear ten on the whole box? Ten, ten, ten. Who would like it for ten? Ten we've got. Twelve. Twelve we've got. Fourteen. Sixteen. 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 Anybody? Sixteen. Sold. Fourteen dollars. Goes to number 38. Thank you, Nicholas. Okay, so remember what Brian was saying about the preponderance of gray hair among Mark members? Nicholas, as in Nicholas Saunders, is an exception to that rule. I caught up with Nick outside the community center just before the auction began. I guess you're the youngest member of the club. I think so, yeah. How old are you? Um, I'm 16. What do your friends think of your hobby? Some of them just think that I should wait until I'm 70 to be interested, in, but whatever. <laughs> Nick, who incidentally is a huge fan of the big broadcast on WAMU. I love Dragnet and also Johnny Dollar. Joined Mark a couple of years ago after his parents took him on a little trip from their home in Arlington, Virginia, to Bowie, Maryland. There, they visited the National Capital Radio and Television Museum, which Mark members started in the 1990s. We had a really good time there, and I've decided to try the club out, and I don't think I've missed a meeting in the whole two years. Now, Nick's radio collecting and restoring has become more than just a hobby. It's kind of a cash cow. So what do you do with the money after you sell these things? I have actually been saving towards a car. I kind of do this rather than a job after school. His two main sources of income are Mark Auctions and eBay. And veteran collector Jeff Shearer says while some collectors find eBay controversial, he wholeheartedly approves. You know, you can get really good deals in these auctions, uh, much better than you find on eBay. So you buy it here, sell it on eBay. But the thing to remember, he says, is however you do your buying and selling, 
Do not end up like that guy who died with mountains of old radios cluttering up his house. Don't hoard this stuff. If I have two of one item, I'm going to get rid of one so somebody else can enjoy it. Because there's other people out there looking for it. You need to share it. And to all of you listening on your radios, if you want to do some sharing of your own, on January 19th, the Mid-Atlantic Antique Radio Club is holding its very first indoor radio Winterfest. Mark is partnering with the National Electronics Museum at the museum right near BWI Airport for a flea market and auction. We have more details on our website, metroconnection.org. Now, before the golden age of radio, there was a time when the streets of American cities were packed not with cars, but with horses and buggies. Given the traffic we see in this region today, you'd think those horse-drawn carriages are long gone, right? Well, not in Baltimore. If you visit Charm City, you can still see these carriages, from which real live vendors peddle fruits and vegetables. Hans Anderson tagged along with two of these vendors to learn how their old-fashioned job has survived the test of time. I'm walking through West Baltimore with Lala and Yusef. These are their street nicknames and the names they prefer to use. They're both Arabers, food vendors who sell produce off a horse and wagon. Lala's knocking on doors and doing most of the hollering you hear. I'm the fruit seller. So like, what's your job as the fruit seller? If you know me, sell the fruit. That's what I do. My name is Lala. Yeah, L-A-W-L-A-W. Yeah, apple, apple. The person who handles the horse is Yusef. Yeah, my name is Yusef. I A-Rap, sell fruit off a horse and wagon. Some, a lot of people can't make it to the mall, you know, old people. They love the A-Rabs. Yusef is 25 years old, wears baggy pants, his hair is in cornrows. His partner Lala is 50, thin, wearing a beanie. They're both African-American, nearly all A-Rabbers are. Their food cart is ornate and brightly colored. It's filled with grapes, greens, onions, and bananas. And when it comes to selling all that produce, they have two different approaches. Lala is more of a traditional door-to-door salesman. For A-Rab business, you go to the beauty salons, you go to the barber shops, you knock on doors, because people right now, not by it's being wintertime, it'd be a little chilly. And people don't be outside like, it, like they normally do in the summer. So we knock on their door, we bring them to the door, we bring the grocery to you. Hey, Papa, I got it for you. I know he ain't bring them. He want potatoes and onions. Yusef has regular customers. We're stopped at a row house off Mosher Street where most of the buildings are boarded up. The block looks pretty much abandoned, but Yusef is shouting up to a second floor window. An older man opens the window with a walking cane and shakes his head. He doesn't want anything right now and asks Yusef to come back a little later in the day. You ain't got no money? Huh? He got his own customers. He the best Arab. I'm second, I'm second, but I, I keep still selling him first, but I'm second. I give it to him. The day goes on like this. Lala stops and tries to talk people into buying fruit at every moment. And Yusef starts to complain that Lala is talking too much and is slowing him down. But Lala is confident that they'll sell everything. Time you have a feeling that you're going to sell out, that's the kind of feeling I got today. Yeah, I need it, for real, me. He needs it for a few reasons. Lala's been to jail and is having trouble getting a steady job. Yesterday, he was by himself and his horse got away and almost hit a car, ruining all of his fruit. And he's not that well off to begin with. I can barely pay my mortgage. 
I mean, in my truck notes. One from my wife that's helping me. Arabing dates back to the days following the Civil War. But no one has a definitive answer for where that term comes from. H.L. Mencken wrote about it. Some people think it comes from the term street Arab. Um, the Greek word for horseman, it sounds something like Arab. Or, there's lots of Greeks here in Baltimore. I'm Daniel Van Allen, and I'm the president of the Arabber Preservation Society. Van Allen lives across an alley from one of the horse stables used by Arabbers. He helped establish a preservation society 10 years ago. As far as the history goes, there's always been door-to-door vending. So as soon as they laid any streets here in Baltimore, somebody was out there with a cart selling things door-to-door, whether it was produce or ice or coal. It's a free country and there's been itinerant vendors and a lot of them have been african-american because this is something that's been available to the black community that's the history of arabbing but the arabbers i met are in the business because of their personal history many are related to earlier vendors like dion comes from a long line of arabbers my grandfather his father my uncle how it all i mean i'm 33 i've been in this since i was one one dion is a stable hand he grew up around horses and likes them Plus, it pays the bills. You know, some people don't know how to work. A-rabbing is their life. You got some people who never had a job a day in his life. Like my uncle, Howard Smith, he never had a job. This is what he did his whole life. Which is a sentiment echoed by Youssef while he's out on his route. He walks 12, 13 miles a day, five days a week, in the cold or in the middle of summer. And he still likes this job. As long as I can walk the clock and see, I'm going to do this. Fun. I'm Hans Anderson. We have photos of Lala and Yusuf at work on the Baltimore streets on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we return, restricted real estate in the days of racial restrictive covenants. The goal was to restrict African Americans or religious minorities to particular areas in the city. You know, I think there was a lot of fear Plus, the backstory on one of D.C.'s most mysterious sites. It's a beautiful place, and the irony is that we don't see, however, the industrial side of it. It's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're heading back in time in Washington with a show we're calling Throwbacks. And the story we'll hear next is about a relic from the days of segregation. That relic is something known as a racially restrictive covenant. And for years in D.C., these covenants prevented black residents from living in what were thought of as white neighborhoods. And even though these policies ended with the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, the effects still resonate today. Lauren Ober has the story. The year was 1950. A gallon of gas cost 18 cents. Diners Club issued the first ever credit card, and a prominent black doctor named Robert Dean wanted to buy a house in the northwest D.C. neighborhood of Mount Pleasant. The house Dean had his eye on was a stately seven-bedroom Georgian Revival built in 1906. 
Perched above Park Road, the house typified the grandeur of the block. We're on the 1800 block of Park Road, northwest, which is the block with all the biggest houses in the neighborhood. They're like big freestanding houses that were built by rich businessmen in the earliest years of the 20th century. That's local historian Marge Cherkasky. She's giving me a tour of Mount Pleasant. Well, the neighborhood developed basically after the streetcar started running up here in 1903. It became a row house neighborhood, basically. And then some even better off people built these large freestanding houses. It was one of those freestanding houses that Dr. Dean wanted for his family of five. This is the biggest house on the block. And it was built for a um, German immigrant wine and liquor dealer named Charles Kramer. And he lived in it his whole life, and then his daughter Lillian Kramer inherited it. As such, the house was Lillian Kramer's to do with as she pleased. And in 1950, she wanted to sell it to Dr. Dean. But there was a problem. Remember, Dr. Dean was black. And back then, black people didn't live in Mount Pleasant or really anywhere else in the district except Shaw, Anacostia, and a tiny handful of crowded African-American enclaves. It's not because the city's black residents didn't want to live elsewhere. It's because they weren't allowed to buy property in neighborhoods like Mount Pleasant because of what were called racially restrictive covenants. They usually restricted the sale of the property to whites, so sometimes they excluded particular groups of people, African-Americans, religious minorities, Jews, And they ran with the land, so they were intended to last in perpetuity. That's Valerie Schneider. I'm an assistant professor of law at Howard University School of Law, and I run the Fair Housing Clinic here. So what Schneider's saying is that there were riders attached to the deeds of many houses in the district that specifically forbade owners from selling their property to black buyers, or Jewish buyers, or even Mexicans or Persians, depending on whom developers or neighbors didn't want living next door. Sometimes these covenants weren't attached to individual houses. They could just be agreements entered into by all the residents in a particular neighborhood. That was the case in Mount Pleasant. So the goal was to restrict African-Americans or religious minorities to particular areas in the city. I think people felt that that would preserve property values in their areas. You know, I think there was a lot of fear. In the 1926 case Corrigan v. Buckley, the U.S. Supreme Court ostensibly endorsed this type of thinking by basically turning a blind eye to these covenants. The former dean of Howard Law School, Charles Hamilton Houston, was one of the lawyers who argued unsuccessfully against the overtly racist practice. But Houston wasn't put off by the defeat. He and other lawyers used the case to fine-tune their legal strategy moving forward. Instead of just fighting the legality of these racially restrictive covenants head-on, we're going to bring in a lot of sociological and economic evidence that shows the damage that these covenants do. Not just to African-American communities, but to others as well. In 1948, they had their day in court again. The Supreme Court heard two cases on these covenants. One involved a dispute in D.C.'s Bloomingdale neighborhood. Again, Houston argued for the petitioner. They had experts testify at trial as to the overcrowding caused by racially restrictive covenants and that that caused deplorable housing conditions. They linked racially restrictive covenants to infant mortality rates in African-American communities because of all the health issues, crime issues related to the overcrowding. Houston and his team prevailed. The justices ruled that racially restrictive covenants could not be legally enforced. But that didn't stop groups like the Mount Pleasant Civic Association, says historian Mara Cherkasky. In 1950, obviously, the covenant was no longer valid, but neighbors sued anyway. They sued Lillian Kramer for having sold a house to Dr. Dean. 
but the court threw out the suit. So the deans moved in. When the deans settled into the yellow clabbered house on Park Road, they were the only black residents for miles. Margelle Thomas, one of Dr. Dean's three daughters, recalls it was a hard place to grow up. Thomas lives in Connecticut now and didn't want to speak on tape. But she did say that her family kept to itself and didn't have any dealings with the neighbors who had sued to stop them from moving in. The Dean's story was unique at the time because they succeeded in buying a house in a white neighborhood. But countless black families were denied real estate in much of the district, not just because of covenants, but also because banks refused to lend to minorities. Realtors wouldn't even show houses to black people. Valerie Schneider of Howard's Fair Housing Clinic says the impact today of policies that created and reinforced segregation can't be overstated. I mean, I see the direct linkage in the work I do every day, and that's not just racially restrictive covenants. It's also zoning decisions. It's decisions about where to build highways, which neighborhoods they're going to cut through and which neighborhoods they're going to create greater access to. So I think that you can directly trace the sort of explicit racist policies to current housing segregation. And that, she says, is going to take a lot of work to undo. I'm Lauren Ober. We'll head to a different part of Washington now, just west of North Capitol Street near Children's National Medical Center. That's where you'll find the McMillan Reservoir and the sand filtration site next door. This piece of land has sat unused for decades. But now, momentum is once again building for new development. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us this look at the history of this rather unusual property. In some ways, the McMillan site, with that collection of imposing concrete silos, has become D.C.'s version of Stonehenge, visually unmistakable and mysterious at the same time. One person who spent some time trying to remove that shroud of mystery is Emily Eich. She's an architectural historian who's part of Envision Macmillan, a partnership between the mayor's office and the private sector that's putting forth a plan to redevelop the site. Ike, who meets me on the corner of First and Channing Streets, says the story of the sand filtration site starts in the early 20th century, when Congress decided the district needed to expand its water system. The issue was whether it would be a chemical filtering system or a a slow sand filtering system. And the slow sand filtering system requires more space and and takes more time, but it was considered by the Congress who made the decision that it was a, a safer system, even though chemicals at the time were extremely popular. The bulk of the system is underground, comprised of large rectangular concrete cells. These cells are like caverns, or it's a barrel vaulted system, actually that the sand sits within. Each is one acre. Each acre has a completed cell. And though sand filtration required more space and worked more slowly than a chemical system, it operates on a simple principle. Water comes through a pipe and goes into sand, and then the particles and the bad things that are in the water attach and go to the bottom, and the clean water goes to the top, and then it is pumped out. Ike and I walk down Channing Street towards North Capitol. 
On our left is the south side of the rectangular site and the steep grassy man-made hill that seems to guard its edge. But the slope isn't there to keep people out. It's there because the site itself sits on a gradual incline. What this is is a superstructure that's been built on top of the ground, on the earth, and then been covered with a layer of sort of like a green roof is what it is. Ike says from the beginning, architects and engineers on the project worked hard to ensure that the site would add to the beauty of the city instead of detracting from it. The eminent landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted Jr. was brought in to help. Ike says Olmsted introduced the idea of a tree-lined walking path around the rim of the site. People were encouraged to walk along the edge and you could look across it. And it was a very ingenious way of blending and sort of disguising the industrial use that was going on there. But the public was prohibited from walking across the site, and there was good reason to stay on the edge. There are over 2,000 manhole covers on this site, and one-third of them were, were open at any particular moment. In the 1940s, with the country on a war footing, the federal government fenced off the property to protect it from enemy sabotage. In 1985, the Army Corps of Engineers shut down the site altogether after completing a new filtration system next to the McMillan Reservoir. It offered the old sand filtration property to the district. When the federal government sold the property to the District of Columbia in 1987, it was sold for $9.3 million with the intention of the district to develop it. And we know that because, in fact, it was offered to the district for free if they didn't develop. So the district paid the money. But now it's been nearly two and a half decades. And the only thing that's really developed here is a sort of mystique. For many years, nothing was happening here. Nobody was walking on here unless people were trespassing. And it seemed very mysterious. The city has put forward several plans to redevelop the site over the past few decades. But a lack of community support, financial backing, or both doomed the efforts. The city has expectations for the site and the neighborhood has expectations for the site and those are not quite aligned. So getting them aligned has been a very complicated process. And, and there are people who value this as a very romantic spiritual site now, which is very interesting because it was an industrial site. Which brings us back to the success of the first engineers and architects to work on the project. The people who wanted to achieve the perfect marriage between an industrial site and a space the public could enjoy. Ike says, ironically, their success in achieving that balance may be what's made finding the right future for the McMillan sand filtration site so tricky. It is not a site where you can just take down the fence on the outside and turn it into a park because you'd fall down through the manhole covers if it didn't collapse underneath you. And so, more than a century after it was built, the McMillan site stands as yet another monument to an age-old lesson. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. I'm Jonathan Wilson. Next week, Jonathan will bring us more on the latest plan for redeveloping the McMillan sand filtration site, along with some input from those who oppose that plan. In the meantime, to see some photos of those old sand filtration cells you just heard about, you can find a link to Emily Eig's historical preservation report on our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, dishing about D.C. dining. 
A new book says the way to the city's heart is through its restaurants. President Kennedy loved to go to fine restaurants. He went here. His favorite table was in the corner here at the Monocle. Plus, it's time to play the music. It's time to light the lights. It's time to meet the puppets on the Muppet Show tonight. This is Oscar the Grouchy. This Swedish chef. And I have Cookie Monster. That and more is coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're taking a walk down memory lane with a show we're calling Throwbacks. Earlier in the hour, we peddled produce with some old-time street vendors in Baltimore, and now we'll return to the theme of food, glorious food, right here in the nation's capital. I noticed how people tend to say that, oh, 10 years ago there were no good restaurants in Washington. And this really annoyed me because I knew there were a lot of good restaurants in the old days that are gone now. So many, in fact, that this guy decided to write a book all about them. His name is John DeFerrari. I'm a native Washingtonian and history writer, and I've written two books on D.C. history. The first was called Lost Washington, D.C. And the second, recently published by the History Press, is Historic Restaurants of Washington, D.C. I recently met up with DeFerrari in front of one of those historic restaurants, The Monocle, at 107 D Street Northeast on Capitol Hill. Dates back to 1960. It opened right in the heat of the presidential campaign between Kennedy and Nixon. And it's in an old circa 1885 townhouse, the only one left on this block. Indeed, the block has changed a lot through the years, as has Washington's restaurant scene. But one thing that hasn't changed, says DeFerrari, is how influential one particular D.C. resident has been on the city's eateries, the president of the United States. This has been going on, as you say, a long time. Harvey's Restaurant, one of the great seafood restaurants of the city that was around for many decades, got a big lift when President Abraham Lincoln went there and enjoyed steamed oysters for the first time. People noticed when the president went places. And this has happened all through the years. Even President Kennedy loved to go to to fine restaurants. He went here. His favorite table was in the corner here at the Monocle. But he also went to some new restaurants opening up in, in the early 60s. Sanssouci, the uh, Jockey Club, Reeve Gauche, and Georgetown, the fine restaurants of his day, really got a big kick from having the president come. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. What were some of the first notable restaurants in Washington, D.C.? They were all on Pennsylvania Avenue, pretty much. Every, all business was down there. One of the most uh, notorious, in a way, was Beverly Snow's Epicurean Eating House. It featured terrapin and other exotic game. The reason I say it's notorious is because Beverly Snow was actually an African-American. He'd been born a slave and had been freed. And the Snow Riot of 1835 is named after him because uh, the, the Snow Riot was an agitation that happened amongst a lot of angry young white men who felt threatened by African-Americans, particularly slaves at the time. And they decide to take out their frustration on any and every African-American businessman they could find. And Snow's well-known restaurant, his Epicurean eating house on the corner of Pennsylvania and 6th Street, was attacked and basically trashed. Uh, But he is certainly the most famous early restaurateur of D.C. 
Jumping ahead in time a bit, um, you know, we can't talk about D.C.'s restaurants through the years without bringing up the issue of segregation. And in your book, you, you talk at length about how blacks were shut out of a number of D.C. institutions. Tell us more about that. The fact that uh, African-Americans could not eat in white restaurants meant they had an incentive to develop their own. And there were some really fine African-American restaurants, particularly on the U Street Corridor, which was the business center. Harrison's Cafe was a very, very fine cafe. Uh, Harrison was famous for his ice cream. Um, There were others. There was Cecilia's next to the Howard Theater, which is a well-known haunt of actors. With desegregation, because blacks could now go to all the other restaurants that that whites went to, this actually had a detrimental effect on African-American restaurants because there was no longer a need for restaurants to be exclusively African-American. And as a result, there really was a pretty sharp decline. Well, let's go to the 1910s. Prohibition came to town November 1st, 1917. How did D.C.'s restaurants fare during that time? Prohibition was a real blow to the restaurant business. All the great restaurants on Pennsylvania Avenue were famous for their good drink as well as their food, and many of them went out of business. Hancock's, Gerstenberg's, Welker's, Maids, names which I know people aren't recognizing, but nevertheless they were famous at the time. They all went out of business. And it really helped propel the rise of lunchrooms and diners that began to take the place of, of the old-style uh, restaurants. You can't mention lunch in D.C. without talking about the power lunch. And you devote part of your book to this. And I think it's really interesting how you write that, that with these VIPs coming for these power lunches, I'm going to quote you here, all rely first and foremost on the warmth and discretion of their hosts to make guests feel relaxed and at ease. Yes, the food also needs to be good, but it's rarely the driving factor. Can you talk about some of the power spots around town that we've seen through the ages? Well, we're standing in front of one of the power spots, certainly the Monocle on Capitol Hill. But there have been a bunch of others, and I have to mention in particular Duke Zebert's on Connecticut Avenue, because a lot of people in the 1950s and 1960s are going to remember Duke's. Duke Zebert was a real character the kind of person to make anybody feel at home but he was also kind of a good old boy and he would always be joking with his favorite clients and this was the, the kind of atmosphere that fit in with the power restaurant especially in those days in your book you write about something else that sets dc apart in terms of its restaurants how it was pretty much a, a pioneer in terms of ethnic restaurants well, there, I guess there are several generations of ethnic restaurants. There were the ones like the Italians and the Germans and the Greeks were here early, the late 19th, early 20th century. But in terms of other ethnic restaurants, D.C. has often been the pioneer in the 20th century. A lot of the more recent arrivals have been in D.C. for the whole country. Vietnamese restaurants, for example, the very first were in D.C. Afghan restaurants... Middle Eastern restaurants, we've got uh, the famous Mama Isha's and Adams Morgan, for example. Uh, We've got ethnic restaurants of all type now, and that seems to be pretty special to D.C. John DeFerrari is the author of Historic Restaurants of Washington, D.C., now out from the History Press. 
The book includes a bunch of authentic recipes, like monocle stuffed shrimp and Watergate in Pennsylvania popovers. It also features a number of historic photographs and images, and we have a handful of them on our website. Curious to see whose cigarette Edward R. Murrow is lighting at the monocle? Want a glimpse of the original Duke Zebert's postcard? It's all on MetroConnection.org. Our next story is about a particular historic restaurant, one that's been serving up bratwurst and sauerbraten, not to mention pints and pitchers of ice-cold beer, for nearly 80 years. Blobs Park features a 968-seat eatery, a rollicking beer garden, and a 2,000-square-foot dance floor. It's drawn a loyal following of folks who show up every week to nosh, drink, and strut their stuff. But as Tara Boyle tells us, this chapter of Maryland history will soon come to a close. There are surely lots of people who come to Blobs Park for the food. But the real draw, the thing that makes this place one of a kind, is the polka music. It's Sunday afternoon at Blobs, and the band Joy of Maryland is on stage. The dance floor is packed with a swirling mass of people, young and old. Some are doing a sort of shuffling step. Some are bouncing and bounding across the room. Others are clearly winging it. I just last night had someone who travels the circles, the dancing circles, and they said that as far as they know, this is the biggest dance floor outside of hotel ballrooms. This is Max Egerl, the current owner of Blobs Park and the grandnephew of Max Blob, the German immigrant who founded this place. My Uncle Max had a clubhouse basically during Prohibition. And when Prohibition ended, he got a beer and wine license and opened the clubhouse to the public, uh, got an accordion player, charged a dime for people to come in. Now it's $10. <laughs> Things have changed a little bit. And the biggest change is still to come. The Catholic Archdiocese of Baltimore owns the land on which Blob sits. And last month, Max got the news. The Archdiocese had decided to develop the property. On the 1st of December, they sent a messenger out from the law office with a short notice that I had 120 days to vacate the place. They were taking it over. That means Blobs will close for good on March 30th. I'm having a hard time. Not crying about it all. Peggy Rice and her husband Dave have been coming to Blobs Park for 25 years. My very favorite memory is the fact that my son-in-law, first time he told my daughter he loved her was while they were dancing here at Blobs. Many a romance has bloomed on the dance floor at Blobs Park, and many unsure dancers have taken their tentative first steps here, learning not just polka, but the waltz, rumba, cha-cha, tango, and other partner dances. 17-year-old Carmela Barbo of Annapolis, Maryland, has been dancing here for seven years. I kind of am like a group leader almost. Like I help put all the performances together. Carmela is a member of a dance group called the Polka Kids, which started at Blobs Park 30 years ago. Tonight is the group's very last performance. So here we go, the Polka Kids dancing the Krakowiak. A dozen kids take to the dance floor in handmade costumes, white shirts and pants and embroidered red vests for the boys, lacy white dresses and similar red vests for the girls. They do traditional polka routines, a country-western sort of polka, and a waltz, before asking all the former polka kids in the audience to join them for a dance. Well, I was kind of uh, lost for words. I was uh, 
struggling in between songs when the kids were dancing. I'm looking to Mary for help. This is Butch Katowski. He and his wife Mary have been teaching the Polka Kids how to dance since 1984. And I'm saying... Help me get through this thing, because I'm having a tough time. And she could hear the voice quiver. And uh, there was so much to say, and there was so many memories. That sentiment is echoed over and over again as patrons hug old friends on the dance floor and pour over photo albums from decades past. George Ward of Ellicott City, Maryland, has been coming to Blob since 1958. There's a family kind of feeling to it. Uh, it's hard to express unless you've been a part of it for a long time, but not many places like it around you. It's unlikely there will be many places like Blobs Park built in the future. Owner Max Egrell says it's costly for venues to offer live music and dancing. And the demand for polka in particular isn't as high as it once was. You know, people are not as social as they used to be. This next generation is growing up on the internet and their limited social skills. You know, they, they're more familiar with talking to a computer than they are with people. And this place is built around people socializing with people. Eggerl says he'd like to open a new German restaurant once Blobs closes, but the focus will be on food, not music. It'd be a whole lot easier for me to manage that, you know, not the spring chicken either. I'll be 69 years old my next birthday, so most people retire about then. I'm looking at opening a new career. But before he gets too far in planning that whole new career, Max has something else up his sleeve, a way to make his goodbye to Blobs as much a beginning as it is an ending. We just this weekend made some really special plans for the last day. I'm going to get married on the last day we're open. You're kidding. I'm serious, yeah. He says he and his fiancée, Sandra, will say their vows and host a private party for friends. Then they'll throw open the doors to the public so that all the people who love Blobs can take one last twirl across the dance floor and remember the good times they've had here. I'm Tara Boyle. You can pay a virtual visit to Blobs Park on our website. We have videos of the scene on the dance floor and of Blobs cooks grilling up lots and lots of German sausages. Just head to metroconnection.org. Our final story in this week's Throwbacks show takes us inside one of the oldest forms of performance art, puppetry. Evidence suggests that puppets have been around for 5,000 years and have popped up in countries all across the globe. A number of our own country's puppets are now on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in an exhibit called Puppetry in America. Jacob Benston takes us behind the scenes. In a hallway in the basement of the Museum of American History, museum conservator Sune Park Evans walks me into a locked room. It's quiet, but filled with dozens of veiled figures covered by white sheets. She pulls off the sheets one by one. This is Oscar the Grouch. Green, furry Oscar the Grouch without his trash can. This Swedish chef, and I have a cookie monster. The museum owns about 30 of Jim Henson's classic Muppets. This Oscar and Cookie Monster date back to the beginning of Sesame Street more than 40 years ago. 
These are middle-aged puppets, and keeping them healthy is a job that's fallen to Park Evans, the museum's senior costume conservator. So now, sort of, I'm kind of a puppet conservator. <laughs> the problem with puppets is that they aren't always built to last. Park Evans opens a plastic bag filled with debris, duct tape, aluminum wire, and a sticky brown powder. It's old decomposing polyurethane. Like, you know, uh, cushion. It's kind of yellow foam. This foam was a favorite of puppet makers, but not a favorite of conservators. It's kind of easy to work on, so all the uh, puppet, muppet makers like this material. They also used just about anything they had on hand, not exactly archival quality. So they used the duct tape and also, um, you know, like, what do you call that? Pops. Like when you wrap some things and then pop. Bubble wrap. Yeah, bubble wrap, bubble wrap. So they used all those kind of things. So I had to take them out completely and then rebuild the shape. That bag filled with duct tape and powder, that was the innards of the Swedish chef puppet built in the mid-70s. Rebuilding the puppets from the inside out was painstaking work, and also required some research. I don't know what they should look like. Park Evans didn't grow up watching the Muppets. She grew up in Korea, so she had to do some studying, watching old Muppets videos. Still, she got some things wrong. For example, this one. I, you know, made this um, Swedish chef, like a human kind of, a, you know, body. So I had a shoulder and all the body. I spent a lot of time. So it was almost like one week worth. But then she got advice from a puppeteer who'd worked with Jim Henson. She came down she said, no, this is not really right. Two people go in to um, run this Muppet. Jim Henson and fellow puppeteer Frank Oz both had to fit inside the Swedish chef who wasn't shaped like a normal human. So no shoulder, no human body shape, only arms. So I did a completely redone. Park Evans is readying these puppets for their debut upstairs in the museum's rotating exhibition on the history of puppets in America. Currently on display, the early ancestors of Cookie Monster and Oscar the Grouch. These characters are all from 1955. Curator Dwight Bowers. They represent the very first Muppets. They are this the cast of Sam and Friends. Sam and Friends! Which was a local television show here that was broadcast on the NBC affiliate. WRC-TV, Channel 4, Washington. They are largely abstract shapes surrounding the character of Kermit, who is not yet a frog, who was made by Jim Henson from Jim Henson's mother's discarded spring coat. So Kermit started out not a, a, a frog? No, Kermit started out as an abstract shape because of that was the interest of Jim Henson making abstract shapes. Yeah, so he still, I mean, he looks frog-ish here. Yes. He's... Well, Jim Henson referred to him as a reptile-like thing. The Muppets are probably America's most enduringly famous puppets, but others enjoyed their day in the limelight, too. From Hollywood, it's the new Edgar Bergen Hour with Charlie McCarthy. Charlie McCarthy was one of America's early radio stars. He was known for snappy repartee and uh, the bon vivant, dressed in the tuxedo, of course. And he was a puppet. He was very much a puppet. Although, to, to audiences who listened to his radio show weekly, he was more than a puppet. Charlie McCarthy was the ventriloquist puppet of actor Edgar Bergen. Bizarrely, the two became famous on radio, where listeners could see neither the puppeteer nor the puppet. 
The earliest puppets on display at the museum were brought to America by immigrants. The oldest is a Chinese shadow puppet from 1850. It's a combination of a unicorn-type beast and、um, a lion. The newest puppets on display are from the 2005 Tim Burton film Corpse Bride. These are stop-motion puppets. They're posed and then filmed. Posed and then filmed. Over the years, puppets have endured. Thrived even with the arrival of new technologies that could have displaced them: radio, television, computer animation. People just like puppets and their strange humanness. I think audiences love, not with radio, but obviously with television and with film. They love to look at the idea of an inanimate object made animate. All it takes is a little foam and duct tape, and one actor can become any character imaginable: a unicorn, lion, beast, a reptile-like thing. Or even a vaguely Scandinavian celebrity chef. I'm Jacob Fenston. Want to visit some of Jim Henson's earliest Muppets? The National Museum of American History's Puppetry in America exhibit runs through April 13th. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Tara Boyle, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Hans Anderson. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and MetroConnection.org. Our theme song, "Every Little Bit Hurts," is from the album title tracks by John Davis, and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on MetroConnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the "This Week on Metro Connection" link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there, or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show we're calling "Fresh Starts." We'll hear how one woman's stunning bout with cancer reinvigorated her creativity. We'll visit a brand new bakery that proves you're never too old for a fresh start or fresh starter. And we'll talk with the people trying to put a fresh face on a changing DC neighborhood. Plus, we'll bring you the return of our series DC Gigs, featuring Washingtonians with distinctively DC jobs. This time around, we'll meet a woman who pilots helicopters for the President of the United States. So now I'm running the other engine up, so it'll、uh, drive the main transmission. And once we have that torque matched with the other engine, we'd be ready to、uh, take off and go flying. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.